Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Curtis Yarvin, who in the past has written under the pen name Minchus Moldbug. Today, he writes mostly on his Gray Mirror blog on Substack. While I don't always agree with Curtis, there is no denying the depth of his thinking. I'm a paid subscriber to Gray Mirror. It's worth a look if you're interested in real as opposed to simulated thinking. Welcome, Curtis. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Yeah, it'd be great to chat with you. I've you know been a, a reader of your stuff for a long time, and uh, it's great to have a chance to actually talk to you. Uh, today, we're going to talk mostly about ideas emerging from his recent essay, uh, 2020, The Year of Everything Fake, uh, which is on his uh, Substack Gray Mirror, but it is not behind the paywall. So feel free to check it out. And as always, we'll have a link uh, to that essay on the uh, episode page at jimrutshow.com. So anyway, uh, sort of the, the gist of the beginning of the essay is uh, kind of a, a riff on the Ability or inability to take the world seriously. Uh, what did you mean by that? Well, you know, one one way to explain that is to think about the way that we think about history, because we're actually very used to not taking periods in the past seriously. Suppose someone from the old kingdom of Egypt was to come up to us and say something about the giant dung beetle that was pushing the sun around the earth, or the pharaoh who's actually the sun or the, the distant dependent. You know, Would we try to argue with this person? No, we might humor them. I mean, maybe we've been transported to their kingdom, in which case we're like, yes, definitely, big dung beetle. Got it. Um, but, you know, when we live in the present, of course, we live in this sort of real tangible world that can affect us in these sort of very clear physical ways. And so we have to take it seriously on a physical level. But do we have to respect it on an intellectual level? And clearly, there are, you know, all, you know, all periods in history deserve respect. But, um, you know, we certainly can't you know, say that all periods in history are equal. Uh, we certainly respect the intellectual achievements of, let's say, the Italian Renaissance much more than we respect the intellectual achievements of, let's say, late antiquity when the Huns are about to invade and the Romans are basically the biggest dickest caricature out of out of Monty Python. Um, and so the question is, when we look at our own society, are we more like the Italian Renaissance? Are we more like Biggeth Dicketh? And, um, you know, it's hard to, you know, especially when you look at late antiquity specifically, there's some very interesting parallels there, which, uh, you know, don't come across super well. Um, but, you know, when we look at the way our society and specifically the way our discourse perceives itself, it definitely looks in the mirror and thinks it's looking at the Italian Renaissance. 
but you know, so do so do all all periods. So does so certainly did late antiquity, and so which is definitely a period that cannot be taken seriously. I mean, we take Plato seriously. Plato, you know, is writing. Um, you know, 800 years before this, we take him completely seriously. We can't take, say, Prudentius seriously. We don't, you know, St. Augustine, I guess some people take him seriously. Um, you know, but it's it's like a, um, the, the, the sort of the value of the period is not guaranteed. And so when you look at our society, you're sort of trying to figure out, okay, is this a society and a period that can even be taken even be taken seriously. And, um, you know, I think increasingly it's becoming clear that the answer is really no. I tend to use the uh, the phrase clown show for it fairly often yeah, about our political process. Right? Sure, sure. For, for example, there's a famous passage in Macaulay, um, you know, the, the, the English historian from the 18, I guess around the 1830s or so is probably around when this was written. Macaulay is a, is a great liberal. Um, you know, he really believes he's a Whig. He believes in the Whig theory of history. He believes in the continuous advance of history, but, you know, he of course is, um, familiar with thinking in the other direction. And so he poses this, this example, um, you know, which is, um, was fairly famous in the Victorian world of, um, you know, some, some, some explorer from New Zealand, you know, contemplating the ruins of London, uh, in a very Logan's run like fashion. And, um, of course this is 150 years before Logan's run, but, uh, you know, he brings up the same image of, 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 of London and ruins. And this is being contemplated by this citizen of New Zealand, which is this bright rising society or whatever, uh, you know, in his future. Um, it's sort of funny. One question, and this was a common sort of Victorian perception. So, you know, we can certainly ask, you know, the Victorians coming a little bit closer than late antiquity are sort of a good example of this because we can easily ask, Okay, what do we think of the Victorians? Well, clearly they were racist, sexist, you know, uh, hung up, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, great stereotypes about the Victorians. And then you can say, well, what would the Victorians think of us? And literally, you know, if you could bring a Victorian, you know, uh, preferably an intellectual to 2020 and they would observe the clown show, as you call it, what would be their reflections on this? What would they think had gone wrong? Um, or right, or right. Maybe they're like, oh yeah, this is what we were, this is what definitely what we were hoping for here. And, um, most people when, you know, I would say if you talk to an academic historian about this analogy, you would basically be like, well, you know, why should we take their, like, we're better than them. Why should we take their critiques of us seriously? Like what the hell, you know? And so I, I don't think that I, someone would be gauche enough to actually say that, but there's a sort of historical, this, this temporal chauvinism, um, you know, which some, some call presentism that sort of creeps into that. And so presentism is sort of always assuming that your world is completely real and that it basically deserves a very sort of large amount of respect. And this is very much the mistake that the scholars of the late Roman empire are making because they don't think their empire is declining. They don't, they don't like they don't think there's a problem at all. They're writing in like the late fourth century AD and everything is perfectly fine. And what these guys do is um, they basically they surf connections. 
Um, the whole system is built on these connections. They have this um, sort of very pretentious intellectual tradition, the tradition of the grammarians, as it's called, um, which is, um, you know, they'll study writers like Virgil. They actually consider their own work equal in quality to that of Virgil, which is utterly hilarious because it's this like just like pompous fluff. And the main literary sort of tone of the era is a tone of flattery. They're always flattering each other. And they're always writing these long flattering letters to each other because obviously connections grifting is how the how the world works at this time. And you know you and and a lot of these letters have been saved because this is a Christian period, and so you know the works of Christians are getting randomly copied by monks, and so it's like there's this one Sidonius um, uh, um, writer who was he was actually very politically influential. He was a player, and he wrote all these letters, and we have all these letters, and you read all these letters, and you're like. Sidonius, I don't care, you know, what a great villa of your friends you stayed at the other day. What I care about is the fall of the Roman Empire. But he doesn't talk about the fall of the Roman Empire. He's not interested in the fall of the Roman Empire. And then like in like one or two passages, you know, he's like, oh, biggeth, dicketh, I'm sorry I could not visit you this year because the roads were so dangerous. And you're like, why were the roads dangerous? Who's making the roads dangerous, you know, <laughs> and, um, and there's no answer to these questions. Right. And, and, and that's a society that sort of is clearly falling in this. I mean, we don't sort of have the equivalent kinds of barbarians, uh, but it's a society that's clearly falling because it's just out of touch with reality. And when you sort of fast forward to that into 2020, it's like everyone was just completely in this country was taken aback by its complete incompetence in dealing with this disease. And it's also, it's absolute incompetence and it's also it's relative incompetence as compared to other countries. And that was just something that Americans did not expect. And the West in general, I mean, uh, parts of the West did a little better, but in general, you could say the West failed this test in a pretty uh, miserable fashion across the board. Uh, they failed it in different ways, but uh, uh, none of them did nearly as well as uh, uh, most of the Confucian countries uh, were, were able to do. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, you know this presentism idea. I often will uh, uh, talk about mythos. You know that there's a at any given time in society, there's a series of beliefs that most people, other than you know chronic assholes like you and me believe, right? And uh, people think it's right and good. I mean, I like to point out that the Aztecs, while they were cutting the hearts out of 13-year-old girls and throwing them down the pyramid for the priests to eat, thought they were good and wonderful people. Uh, so that's you know not at all unusual that no matter what the state of the world is, is 95, 98, 99% of the people uh, entirely believe the mythos of the era. Uh, and only if you have that rare, rare time that you can step away from it. Do you know the term uh, political formula? Uh, not, no. This is, this is a term, uh, you know, the, the kind of the introductory textbook on political science I always recommend is a book called The Machiavellians by James Burnham, um, which is a great uh, survey of something called the Italian School of Political Science, mainly writing around the turn of the last century. Um, and pre chiefly featuring writers like um, 
uh, Gatano Mosca and Wilfredo Pareto, who was also very influential in the development of statistics, real, real giants. And Mosca in particular is, I would say he's in some ways the unsung Darwin of political science. Uh, his concept of the political formula is basically the political formula is that element of of the mythos, as you call it, which um, makes people believe that the government is good, that power is is good and right. And so, you know, if you're like an Egyptian peasant, you're like, oh, why do I love the pharaoh? I'm like, you know, I love the pharaoh because the pharaoh is the son of the sun. And if the pharaoh is displeased, the sun will go out. Right. And that's a political formula. And we have um, much more modern ones now. And most of these political formulas that happen now um, make the individual feel powerful and important. So they make you feel like you matter. You're changing the world. You have an impact. You care. Uh, you know, all of these words, which are basically euphemisms for you're a powerful person and you mean something and you matter. And so essentially the political formula of today sort of boils down to you matter because you support the government. And so, you know, one of the big shocks for a lot of people feeling this way, you know, which which I, you know, I, I find as we were talking before the show, I find hilarious because I, I sort of grew up in D.C. I grew up in the in the Foreign Service, to be exact. Um, and so this was always like a real thing to me. It could never be this like icon, you know, on a on a, a the, the deep state could never be worshipped because that was where I was from. Um, and so when you find people who really revere the competence of these agencies and, you know, the the essentially you know, the, the, the top-down summary of what happened in 2020 with COVID is that, like, you can see most people, when they look at this disaster, either see the failures of Trump or the failures of the deep state. And, you know, both of those sort of, you know, like screw ups are kind of in some ways equally spectacular, but completely different. But you have to see them both as basically a single screw up of a much larger system. So it's sort of um, it's 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 kind of it's even worse than you think in a way. And just, you know, people are used to thinking, well, OK, at least one of these sides must be good. At least one of these sort of forces or directions or something must have competence, must know what it's doing. The fundamental ideas which this system are based on are obviously completely and totally right, uh, even if they're not always implemented, maybe in the proper way. And in 2020, when you, you know, had, I think, and will continue to have into 2021, this slightly Chernobyl-like effect of basically saying, what if, what if, what if it's all fucked? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do. And we talk about this quite a bit in some of the circles I follow, and the, which is the shock of COVID. Uh, you know, obviously there's many uh, micro shocks, but perhaps the biggest is the number of ears to hear uh, that the status quo, the emperor is wearing no clothes, is probably increased by at least an order of magnitude in one year. Uh, and the implications of that shock in the coming years are hard to predict, but could be quite significant. Sure. I mean, you know, or they could be or they could be nothing at all. I mean, the Soviet Union was in a very, very different situation than ours in in so many ways. But, you know, when you look at the um, the fall of the Soviet Union, certainly what stands out is that if you talk to anyone in the Soviet Union uh, in the 80s, 
uh, even dissidents, even the most radical dissidents, no one and talk to anyone in America, even the most sort of radical cold warriors, maybe some of the radical cold warriors. Nobody is predicting the fall of the Soviet Union. Nobody knows that that concept doesn't even really make sense to people before it happens. That's, uh, and that, that's actually I love that particular uh, analysis. So one of the examples I give is uh, in the late 80s, I bought a book called The Hundred Greatest People in History. <laughs> and I went back to it after the fall of the Soviet Union to, to see exactly what the person had written about Marx. And uh, they had written, this was like the book was published in 87, or the second edition was 87 or 88, something like that. Uh, and the entry on Marx, I think, had him ranked as the third most important person in history after Mohammed, number one, and Jesus, number two, right? One of these, you know, <laughs> pop history kinds of things. So, uh, but anyway, this person said, well, you know, obviously Marxism is going to be a gigantic effect. The Soviet Union, it's hard to see how it could, uh, you know, not, uh, not, uh, be a major force for at least the next 200 years. And this was literally like three years before the fall. So it was, uh, nobody saw it coming. And one of my dear friends is a uh, uh, political scientist specializing in Russian studies and particularly on uh, local and regional government in Russia. And she's been to Russia lots of times. And she said neither her nor any of her colleagues saw it coming. So. Well, uh, you know, here's here's a tweet that was posted uh, 11 minutes ago, uh, Jim, um, by some uh, right wing reporter who um, I don't quite trust these the language he's using here, but I'm just going to repeat it. Breaking revolution in process as Trump supporters break into the Capitol building, attacking police, breaking windows and knocking down doors. Full anarchy at this, quote, mostly peaceful demonstration, D.C. The people have pushed through and are storming to main chambers. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. The barbarians are at the gates. Right? <laughs> we'll, are, we'll make our own barbarians, though. Are apparently through the gate, um, you know. But uh, you know, of course, I can't. Uh, I can't comment on. Uh, I'm not there, but uh, uh, you know, I, I gather someone is filming it. Yeah. Well, well, we'll find out about it later. I mean, one of the, one of my New Year's resolutions was spend a lot less time wallowing in the news. All right. Let us not wallow. Let us let us cease at once to wallow in the news. Yeah, let's get back to our little essay here. And let's go on to the next topic here, which, I, again, a lens. One of the reasons I reached out to you and said I wanted to talk to you about this essay was there were some interesting lenses. And uh, people who listen to the show uh, know that we regularly talk about, you know, choosing the right lens to see, uh, to try to make sense of the world. And I loved your invention of the stupidity quotient. Uh, <laughs> but it was, I think this is a wonderful tool, which I am going to adopt and use and hopefully remember to credit you when I do. Uh, tell us a little bit about the SQ. Oh, uh, that, that, that's just my, that's just my, my, my clever way of, um, of reversing. Um, I, it's really, it's really a literary gesture in that, that essay. Um, you know, what I find is that people for a lot of reasons don't like to talk about IQ. Um, and the other thing is that humans are just objectively stupid. Like we're, you know, I mean, we're terribly bad at things like chess and math. We can barely do math. You know, we're just not very smart creatures. And the stupidest ones, ones among us, um, you know, which is a species that I know very well, what is the stupidest kind of human, obviously? It's a child, right? And so, uh, you know, this is sort of my way of doing the emperor's new clothes thing and saying, you know, let's look at what happened in 2020 through the mindset of a child. You know, let's suppose you have a six-year-old in the house. I don't have a six-year-old in the house. I used to. And I said to the six-year-old, there's a dangerous disease developing in China. 
Do you think we should let airplanes keep flying across the ocean with people that may be full of that disease? The, you know, the child is going to be like, no, make the airplanes turn around, daddy, you know, and, 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 and the, and yet the ability of the USG, which saw that, you know, there was potentially human to human transmission in the first days of January for it to say, well, we don't want to disrupt uh, travel and uh, trade, uh, you know, um, um, is, is to say, no, actually, we're going to make an executive decision. Hey, it looks like there's a weird bug coming out of China. Just to be sure, we're going to disconnect the hemispheres now. Nobody flies, not even South America. Close it off, shut it down um, until we can figure out what's going on. That's sort of what obviously would have been the rational policy. And so to realize that you don't have a government that can think as well as a six-year-old is which, you know, like is completely obvious to like anyone who knows DC, I think gave, you know, came as a relatively large shock to a lot of people looking at this in hindsight. Yeah. And you made an, you make an interesting point throughout the essay that, uh, what uh, the folks in the establishment are optimizing for is not sense-making and making quality decisions, but rather uh, bolstering the institutional reputations and strengths uh, of their particular little uh, factions, shall we say. Sure, because that's that's like, you know, people have an instinct for loyalty. And when you're working in uh, an army or a corporation or something that's structured with a very direct connection to results, then you have this nice, you know, thing where loyalty to the people around you turns into loyalty to the institution, which turns into basically a desire to see the institution get its nominal results. And, you know, that should, that's something that works in any sort of normal structured setup. And it completely, um, you know, in a bureaucracy, there's no accountability for sort of results whatsoever. Um, and the institution is still all powerful. And so your first loyalty is to basically your little bureaucratic mafia that scratches each other's back and helps you advance. Your second lo loyalty is to the institution itself. And often the institution's goals just sort of totally, its real goals just sort of totally diverge from its nominal goals, right? And and that's um, um, that's like there's no way to keep. I mean, you know, it's like you go to D.C. and uh, you know one of the things that happened around 9/11, which is so amazing, is that um, people realized, wow, you know, the securing the U.S. mainland is really. Um, you know, a very important problem. Um, we need a new institution to, to solve that, to secure the nation. What do we call it? Well, why don't we call it national security? But wait, that word's taken. So they had to come up with this weird Nazi sounding thing of homeland security, Heimat, uh, you know, um, and, and you're like homeland, what about national security? But the thing is national security means conquering the planet. And the assumption that America's, uh, you know, national security could only be secured by conquering the planet is, uh, you know, it's certainly older than you. It's certainly older than me. It's a very old assumption. Uh, it really dates back, arguably, to the 20s. Um, and I mean, the original 20s. And, and um, 
so you basically have all of these sort of and then you're like, okay, what is the mission of the State Department? What is it? Well, to secure America's national security as part of our, you know, you're just like, there are all of these things where the point of the institution, which was once when it was established, razor sharp, is not even really clear anymore. And certainly protecting the institution is going to be your highest goal at all times. If you don't think that way, you're just not a team player and you can't continue to work in these places. Yeah, we've talked about interesting books. Uh, one of my real heroes, uh, not so well-known anymore in, in political science, is Mansur Olson. He was a professor oh, yes. at the University of Maryland. And uh, he talks about this a lot in uh, two of the very best deep uh, political theory books, in my mind. One is The Rise and Decline of Nations, uh, where he talks about this exactly, the capture uh of important decision-making by self-serving internal bureaucracies and conflicts of interest between the interests of bureaucracies and various players and the real interests of society. And then a, a more difficult book, but even more important, a book called The Logic of Collective Action, uh, how small groups are always able to outmaneuver large groups uh, when it comes to manipulating bureaucracies uh, such that outcomes that are favorable to the small, more intense group uh, will win out over those that are uh, more, uh, fav- more, you know, more important for the larger group. In this case, let's say the uh, epidemiologists versus the public. Uh, you know, sure, Answer Olson would not not be at all surprised by uh, uh, these outcomes. The one point that I didn't mention in my 2020 essay, which I think brings out this public choice theory stuff really, really well, um, is um, and which is just like it would be hilarious if we're, I mean, it's, it's the very definition of grimly hilarious is, uh, I don't know if you saw the piece by Nicholson Baker in the New York magazine, uh, recently, um, Nicholson Baker is, uh, you know, one of America's greatest writers. And, um, you know, I like to give my, my enemies, um, you know, in the press points when they do things right. And, um, publishing this essay was something New York magazine really did right because essentially what Nicholson Baker does is, um, he took he took on a point that I was I you know I knew and basically agreed with him on this. His point is essentially, look, this is clearly a lab leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and um, and he really does the um, you know he he really traces the kind of scientific trail really really well. And what essentially happened here in the sort of most plausible you know understanding is that after SARS one, a lot of people got funding to study this shit. And then SARS-1 actually disappeared and never went away. And so people are like, um, oh, well, SARS-1 is a bat coronavirus. Clearly, uh, there's a national security threat from bat coronaviruses, um, um, you know, attacking, uh, you know, the human population. So here's what we're going to do about it. We're going to go and find all these bat coronaviruses. We're going to go to every bat cave we can find and dig up bat coronaviruses. We're going to get those bat coronaviruses and see how they can become dangerous to humans and do things called gain of function function experiments where you basically enhance the um, the the power of the virus. This was actually some some of the best virologists got together to actually put a moratorium on funding this stuff. For whatever reason, that was lifted in 2017 uh, in the Trump administration. The main um, player in this let's investigate bat coronaviruses uh, thing is this guy, Peter Daszak. 
and um, um, call it, he has this group called the Echo Health Alliance. Uh, what's hilarious is that the Echo Health Alliance actually um, has a sort of long and distinguished history going back to a zoological organization founded by Gerald Durrell, who was my favorite writer as a kid, um, I, I, an, an English naturalist. But now what they do is they, you know, instead of finding beautiful animals in the world and bringing them to England, uh, they find ugly coronaviruses and bring them to humanity. And um, and in fact, the people who were at the Wuhan Institute of Virology not only had been former students of American PIs in this effort, um, mainly Ralph Barrick at, at UNC, but actually were being funded by American grants to fuck around with bat coronaviruses <laughs> at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And, and so, you know, uh, Nicholson Baker basically brings out this trail. And I know like enough people with expertise in this matter to know that he's not, you know, like this is this is actually like I know people who were involved in putting that story together. Um, this is very, very sound science. And um, of course, the whole sort of conspiracy theory, you know, sort of weaponry has been been turned on it. Um, but it's sort of perfectly true and perfectly obvious. And so the thing that's amazing is this whole epidemic comes out of one of if this is true, and I think it likely is. I wouldn't stake my life on it. But if this is true, the whole pandemic not only failed to be countered by these DC self-licking ice cream cones, if you've heard that term, but was actually created as a DC self-licking ice cream cone. It, it's, uh, it's certainly possible. In fact, uh, one of my deep sources, uh, again, I wouldn't take a huge amount of money on it, but it seems reasonable to me. Uh, his theory, which comes from a family connection, actually, in Wuhan, is that the actual vector was indeed from the Wuhan Institute of uh, Virology. And if you know something about the intensification technology, they use uh, animals to essentially uh, intensify, breed, etc. And particularly, they used uh, ferrets. Yes. And uh, the the story, which, again, strongly plausible because of the other antecedent aspects. I'll have to go check out Nicholson Baker. I actually know Nicholson Baker a little bit, and he's an extremely good uh, uh, writer and thinker. Uh, but anyway, the, the this theory from you know inside Wuhan, a family of a, uh, of a friend of mine, uh, said that it was actually the janitor at the Institute who was supposed to burn the uh, – uh, kill and burn the animals – uh, rather was illegally taking the dead animals to his cousin who was selling them at the uh, the market in Wuhan. And that was the actual vector. And this sounds so realistically Chinese to me. That, 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 yeah, I was, I was about to say that makes perfect sense from everything I know about China. And um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, my, 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 my children speak Mandarin, you know, so, uh, I'm not, I've never been to China, but, um, I have great respect for China, but at the same time, and I use many, many fine Chinese products, but at the same time, that sounds very, very plausible. Um, and, 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 uh, you know, the other piece of information that, you know, I, I heard from a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend was that, um, Wendy Dang, if you know that name, admitted at some fat cat gathering that it was, um, uh, 
that it was it's uh well apparently she said chinese military but that's just pumping it up like there's no military anything around this virus um the um it was just these fuckwads basically doing research for the sake of doing research essentially and then they're like oh but if we you know like if you read their grant proposals i've actually read i read one of these guys grant proposals and it's basically like oh wow you know the next time uh one of these viruses comes to attack us it will uh, you know help a great deal that we've been uh, fucking around with them in our labs of course it didn't help for shit <laughs> exactly well, let's go on to your next sq uh filter where you're on your lens and that is you make the, the good point that very rapidly we actually had some fairly decent uh vaccines uh but it took us a long time to get through this uh, uh sausage factory of fda approvals frankly, about 10 times faster than usual, but still a long time. Uh, interestingly, I had on the sh back on the show in May, May a renegade virologist uh, who actually made his own uh, uh, COVID vaccine in April and gave it to himself and some friends of his. Nice. And he argued on my show on the uh, episode, Brian Hanley is his name, the episode we republished on the 26th of May, uh, that the correct... Uh, theory was that we should release all 100 vaccines into the world right now and just track them quickly and we recall the ones that have uh, a disproportionate number of side effects. And you go down that road and make a similar, though not quite as extreme as Brian's argument. So uh, talk us to about, uh, you know, point number two about SQ at work. Well, I'm a, I'm a generalist and not a specialist, but, you know, I, I like to, as a generalist, I like to come in just a little bit under the specialists, uh, you know, and um, he's certainly, he's certainly right about that. And, you know, it, but I think it, it sort of steps, you, you, what he's right about even more is that the idea of saying we have this holy procedure and our society, which is very holy and which is equal to the best of the Italian Renaissance or whatever, um, is based on following these holy procedures. And if these procedures become less holy, then the whole basis of society falls apart, just as if, you know, the, 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 the dung beetle stopped pushing the sun. Right. And and when you talk to really true believers in the real deep state in DC, you see clearly that it's the form of government that Aristotle would have called an oligarchy. It's process means basically the government of the few because it's the government of the people that are in the process loop. Um, and those people, I think what you have to wrestle with is that most of the people, one thing that people outside DC often sort of make the mistake of thinking is they look at the stupid decisions made by these institutions and they think these the people involved in these institutions are either either stupid or evil because these are stupid decisions that have evil effects and generally speaking they couldn't be more wrong about that generally speaking what you see is that Essentially, what governs really is the process and not the people, to the extent that the people can make a difference. And certainly people in D.C. do make an individual difference all the frickin' time. They do that by, um, I borrowed this phrase from a, from a lib at, 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 at one point, which I really like, which is they do it by manipulating procedural outcomes. So basically, if they want to get you know some outcome from some committee, 
what they don't do is say, okay, I'm just going to bring the best ideas to this process and the best ideas are going to be right. What do they actually do? They stack the fucking committee, right? <laughs> and, and, um, and, and this is how you get things done in DC. You become this kind of master bureaucratic operator and you even start to think of that as a sort of good and noble skill, which perhaps in a sense it is. And so people, and, and of course the people also who succeed in these systems, they're still quite competitive. And so, you know, the people who build these bureaucratic empires, the Fauci's of the world. And by the way, one of the things that um, Baker points out is that the good, the, the ubiquitous Dr. Fauci was actually involved himself considerably in this whole let's do gain of function experiments on bat beta coronaviruses thing. Right. So it's actually to to a, to like you're appointing like the head of the Soviet nuclear authority to clean up Chernobyl. Um, and in fact, they even appointed this guy, Peter Daszak, to lead the committee that would go into China and figure out where this epidemic came from. So, I mean, that's just a masterstroke. Like you, you basically you have a guy who's credibly accused of being the culprit and he's appointed to lead the investigation. That's like that's so Hollywood. I can't even, you know, and it, it's beautiful. <laughs> and, and so like this is when you look at these sort of holy institutions, the ability to do that to work in this way is what you're looking at. And so you're looking at very talented, knowledgeable people, but they're operating in a world of incentives that you can't see. And those incentives are very, very different from yours. So for example, with this proposal of, oh, let's give, let's just put the vaccines out there and treat it like the emergency that it is. Um, the immediate counterexample uh, that people think of, and I go into this in the essay, is the swine flu panic of 1976, in which basically a bunch of scientists, no doubt seeking to make a name for themselves, were like, wow, there's a flu in pigs in Mexico that's going to be the next 1918. And um, the uh, Carter administration or the Ford administration, I think maybe it spanned both, um, is like, oh, yes, we must rush this vaccine into production and vaccinate everyone with um, basically... Um, you know, uh, disgusting bulk, you know, spray injectors. And they did that. And or they vaccinated, uh, you know, a substantial percentage of the American population. And unfortunately, two things happened. One is that the swine flu was not really a real thing. And the other um, was that um, of the people who were vaccinated, a few hundred developed Guillain-Barre uh, disease, which is a serious, although generally not fatal condition. Um, and so people are like, oh my God, you know, we fucked this up. This is Hitler 2.0. This must never happen again um, because we violated our, our Hippocratic oath, right? And uh, we, we did no harm, you know, above all did no harm. We just, we harmed these people for no reason. And the thing is that when you look at this from a risk benefit, you know, and, you know, standpoint, first of all, yes, um, um, it is pretty easy to like uh, evaluate vaccine outcomes on the fly. There's also in, obviously the challenge trial approach uh, has been proposed by many uh, as well. I was I was proposing it back in March. Um, the um, you know, but from the perspective of someone involved in these institutions, whose loyalty is to the institution. He basically puts his scale and he says, on one side of the scale, we made 400 people sick who didn't need to be sick. And then on the other side of the scale, we say, well, we let 300,000 people die who didn't need to die. And the thing is, to a, to a child, to any sane person over the age of four, 
I don't think even six is needed here. Uh, you know, you'd be like, wait a second, the right side of that scale is heavier. But actually, inside FDA, it's the left side of the scale that's heavier. And and that that's really, you know, um, um, if you look at what is causing that, what is causing that is something very, very basic uh, as a very basic concept, which all persons in a position of responsibility, which I believe both you and I have been CEOs, um, you know, are uh, understand, which is a conflict of interest. These institutions are giving us this sort of strange advice because they have a very, very strong conflict of interest. Our interest is in, you know, can be accurately expressed by risk benefit advice, but their interest is in retaining their prestige. And so anything that damages their prestige, like we gave this vaccine to people and harmed them, is much more, weighs much more heavily on their minds than, um, you know, this, oh, we just, we're just going to let people die even though we have a vaccine. Just like, what the fuck? Right. You know, like, like the, the, and so the magnitude of this conflict of interest is, is immense. And the problem is completely unsolvable because there's simply no one else who's empowered, who sort of has the legitimate right to make that decision. Let's say Donald Trump had been like, you know, which he easily could have. I mean, he's a mercurial man. He could have been like, oh, yeah, let's release the, um, um, Let's release the vaccine. Uh, you know, um, you know, it's my FDA. I'm, it's part of the executive branch. I'm just going to tell the FDA what to do. You know, uh, I'm the president, aren't I? They elected me, didn't I? Release the vaccines. You know, uh, I don't know what would happen then. But certainly everyone who reads the New York Times and the New Yorker and even New York Magazine would have been like, this is the most illegitimate and evil decision in the world. This guy is Hitler 2.0. We've been saying this for a while and now we know we're right. Um, and you know, there's just no question that that there's no, nothing in the current American system that makes it legitimate to make that kind of decision. Maybe it could be made in an emergency. And so the thing is you have the only authority that you have to make these decisions has a giant conflict of interest. And there is no other authority that we can, can even imagine overruling that authority. And, you know, then I, in the essay, I'll go into a, you know, I go into sort of an amusing digression on, you know, the, the origins of this attitude uh, and the Hippocratic Oath, um, you know, which is that the thing is you have to realize Hippocrates, you know, or as, as some called him, the hippo, uh, was a very realistic guy and, and, and he was a player. And if you wanted medicine, if you could afford medicine in, you know, 200 BC or whatever, then you were a rich dude. You're a rich dude. You're a powerful dude. You're a powerful dude. You can get a guy whacked. So you're a doctor in this environment, you know, and you're a smart guy. You're not naive. You know, you're the hippo. You know, what is your attitude going to be? Your attitude is going to be above all, let me not fuck this up and be seen to fuck it up. Because that's a matter of personal survival to you. So in a way, Hippocrates himself, in the environment that he's operating in, has the same conflict of interest. He can't act wholly in the interest of his patient, because if he does that, and the cost of a positive mistake is going to be very, very great to him personally. Whereas the cost of a negative mistake is like, oh, you know, I did my best. You know, people die. It happens. You know, um, 
Yeah, it's an excellent strategy. It's an excellent mimetic strategy, kind of just like uh, the idea of faith in uh, revealed religion, right? It's one of these. Yeah, and and so and so the thing is that that you know you have to then you have to convince your patient that you're following the right strategy. Whereas you're actually following the wrong strategy because you're actually following, you're conflicted. You're following a strategy that is in your interest and not in the interest of the patient. And so you have to basically brainwash the patient into believing that you're doing the thing that he would do in your position with your expertise, which is not, in fact, the case. Well, you've turned the Hippocratic Oath into a mythos, right? That this is a correct, <laughs> me- that this is a meta strategy that is correct. Uh, and yet, and then it, because it's now a mythos, it can't be questioned. Yes, until and 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 that's the um, the problem with turning things into into a mythos is that when you create when you start to get a lot of things that can't be questioned and can't be changed and um, you know are sort of huge absolutes, they sort of tend to clump together in a way that is very undesired by the creators of the mythos, and then the whole mythos gets thrown out in one in one bag. Which could well happen. So let's go on to the third example that uh, fails the SQ test. Uh, and it's got, I think, perhaps even more interesting ramifications than the, than the uh, first two, uh, which is uh, the lockdown, right? The lockdown. Yeah, let's talk about the lockdown and the various flavors of lockdown and how, how we happen to choose the particular one we did because of the yeah. balances of uh, self-interest by the decision makers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's that's a fascinating story because we landed in the lockdown of shit, basically. Um, and and the um, uh, you know, and it's sort of a fascinating. The whole story of these events is so fascinating, and I had a really weird view on it because I was, you know, of after about I think the middle of January, I was making financial bets on the coronavirus, and so I was basically rooting for this fucking disease. Uh, which is a really unhealthy state of mind, and um, so you know, basically, uh, as as you as you no doubt know, anyone who has a financial position in anything comes to talk their book and basically believe in their story. So, um, arguably, I believed in this virus a little too much, or I was a little too impressed by it. Uh, I thought it was a little closer to the Soderbergh virus. Um, it's sort of in this strange valley where it's a serious concern, but it's not a a, a world ending concern. I think if it was a world ending concern, we probably would have learned to act more effectively. But in any case, basically, you know, I was reading something, some critical piece about China's response to this, or they're trying to find something to criticize. And, you know, what they come up with criticizing is they're like, well, when China sees a problem, it doesn't really think it just solves the problem. <laughs> you know, And so China was like, okay, we're just going to solve the problem. The problem is basically people communicating the disease to each other. The critical ingredient in a true Chinese lockdown is that um, testing is aggressive and proactive and anyone who is tested positive and anyone who has had positive contact was put in a quarantine facility. Simple as that. Stop the thing, brought R down to like 0.3. Bam, Chinese people are partying right now. And so, you know, in a way, the West saw this and it, you know, you might remember, you know, one of the things I go into in, in the piece that we haven't touched on yet is this uh, um, whole great World Health Organization, you know, excuse of travel and trade. Like, oh, yeah, we can't do quarantines because shutting down travel and trade is absolutely wrong. Turns out to be, A, I mean, 
be an obvious lie. B, we've had a lot of trade without travel, you might have noticed uh, since then. Uh, actually, travel doesn't seem to be needed for trade at all. Um, and I actually, uh, that policy came into existence with um, the uh, generous aid of the hospitality industry on the World Health Organization. Um, and so, you know, that's sort of the, the level at which these authorities, I mean, you know, if you think American deep state organizations are fucked, try the international ones. Um, you know, uh, my father was actually the um, U.S. attache to international organizations in Geneva. So, you know, I've seen some shit. Um, but um, the WHO, of course, is like and then this ridiculous organization, because it's a world organization. See, it has W in it and a three letter acronym basically gets to decide what content can appear on YouTube. Uh, it's absolutely wild. Uh, and um, um, the uh, it just destroys every sort of verity of, of this system that we've, we've believed in for, for many years. In any case, basically what happens when the lockdown comes to America is a couple of things. I do think that in general, this is a nasty disease. You don't want it. Um, you should do your best to avoid getting it and giving it to other people. Certainly, this is all true. Um, at the same time, um, the, <laughs> you know, the state capacity of American institutions was greatly overstated by all intellectuals because most most of the people in sort of the discourse don't really have any contact with the regime that is supposedly actually activating these policies that they debate as if they were talking about chess. And so, you know, basically a couple of ideas come up, you know, first of all, we're going to do um, test, uh, test, trace and isolate. In America, and this is, you know, it sounds very straightforward coming out of, uh, you know, like coming out of an academic. Oh, yeah, we're just going to, and remember the tracing apps, everyone is going to have a tracing app. There were all these basically, you know, if you looked at what people were talking about and thinking about, you remember the hammer and the dance? I actually read that essay when it came out. I loved it and I promoted the shit out of it. And I made the mistake. And I made the mistake that you pointed out, right? Which uh, why don't you yeah. talk about that a little bit? Now, this is a wonderful essay that really laid out how an actually effective government uh, could and should have dealt with the coronavirus, but didn't. But 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 the but the analysis, in a way, it's completely misplaced because basically, let's say you're a doctor and you're dealing with a 75 year old, you know, um, um, heart patient who has a, um, you know. Uh, some kind of uh, you know, needs to get back in shape. And you're like, well, you know, here's how an athlete would deal with this. Right? <laughs> it's like an athlete would deal with this by running 10 miles every, every day in the morning. So why don't you run at least five, you know? And, and the, so a couple of things sort of happened out of that experience, right? One is that you're giving this advice. Actually, I, I talked to Thomas Pueo, you know, uh, for an hour or two on, on Clubhouse, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, perfectly, uh, perfectly nice guy, you know, I think he, he you know, but, and, and he certainly recognizes this kind of failing of, of his advice, which is that the advice is, you know, that would have been perfectly reasonable advice delivered to the Taiwanese government. Actually, that was the error I was speaking of, that uh, I made the mistake of assuming that our government was actually capable of acting, which it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 I, and I was living in this world where I'm basically like, I know none of these things can be done. 
how does anybody not know that none of these things can be done? I mean, this is a country, the country, the government doesn't even know to like within 10 million people, how many people are inside it. Uh, anything that involves counting people, tracking people, um, you know, is just hopelessly fucked. Um, if you want to go, if you want to prove your identity in many situations, the best way to prove your identity is with a utility bill. Um, you know, this, this country is a like digital shambles. Uh, you know, there are probably private databases that can do like, you know, really, if you really wanted to make test, hit, trace and isolate work, you know, who, what, who you really would have needed to pull in the collection agencies. <laughs> and, um, the, you know, and, and so, you know, but of course, try to imagine, you know, something like the Thomas Pueyo essay where he's like, oh yeah, and we need to recruit collections agencies to like, to make this happen. Right. They're Asperian, yeah. Asperian will be the will be the front agency on this, right? Well, and that's a that's a credit reporting agency. You know, those aren't the people who actually track. But I mean, but the thing is, the whole thing is a shit show, right? And and even the private, even collections agencies are shit show. I mean, how many times they wind up collecting a debt that doesn't even exist, right? The whole you know digital infrastructure of citizenship is basically you know the twenty first century equivalent of like the Haitian road network. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. And, and so um, you look in countries that actually like have a list of their citizens or like really basic, you know, uh, high tech things like that. And it's just, you know, you, you must know the James C. Scott book, Seeing Like a State. Of course. Uh, it's a very, very interesting book. Right. And, and the thing is that basically one of the things that you see in America um, is that these these many basic, I mean, James C. Scott himself is kind of an anarchist, but one thing you see from James C. Scott is that many features of the American system have this kind of anarchy built into them where they're, they don't want to be seen as a state. And so the state is, you know, the state is bounded in its ability to perceive the population. It's bounded in its ability to control crime. It's bounded in its ability to control disease. It doesn't even have a list of its people. It doesn't know where they are, um, you know, to get access to their phone records, which knows exactly where they are. Is this kind of, you know, Herculean feat, which would be like equivalent to the Civil War or something like that. Um, and so it's a very, very weak state. And we see, of course, much weaker states in the third world that um, are kind of the logical extreme of that. And so basically asking the state to perform like China is very much like asking your, you know, 75 year old heart patient to run a marathon. Um, yeah, running a marathon, maybe it is good for your heart, but not this guy's heart. And, and so we drifted into this zone of unreality. And then the worst thing I think about the hammer and the dance is that basically um, when you give the advice of the hammer and the dance, and there were a lot of sort of, of forms of advice like that. And I do think that piece itself was very influential because it was very well done. But when you basically give that to people who can't dance, what you're telling them is the hammer, but not really the hammer. And what you're telling them is sort of crack down on it, but don't, you know, you got to get it to controllable, uh, you know, levels, you know, um, uh, two weeks to flatten the curve. I'm like, 
do you know anything about math? Because if you know anything about math, you know that one of the hardest freaking things to do with an exponential curve is to flatten it. Either it's going to the sky or it's going to the floor. <laughs> um, and But they're just like, oh, we got to manage, you know, somehow the idea crept into the American institutional mind that the goal of working with COVID-19 was not to eradicate it and not to reach herd immunity, but to kind of control it. And so that drifted into, you know, that's sort of that's where this kind of Afghanistan mindset of like, we need to keep fighting, even though we're not winning, but we need to keep fighting. But it's good that we fight to sort of came, came you sort of fall by default into this permanent war mentality where it becomes completely acceptable that you're not winning, but maybe you could be losing more. And that's, you know, this like this is just, you know, for anyone who's ever, you know, debugged a program, you know, what you see America doing with COVID is thrashing. It's basically trying things that it knows isn't going to work over and over again. And so, yeah, we had this, uh, you know, call it an impedance mismatch between the hammer and the dance and the real capability of uh, American institutions. Uh, I like like the analogy that it's, you know, uh, like the cardiologist telling the 75-year-old to run a marathon. Uh, sorry, not really. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, that was indeed the error of, uh, of thinking that that was the right answer. But what's interesting, if we go back in history, uh, American government wasn't always like that. Back in World War II, we used to actually be able to do shit. Yeah, the actual government was able to do th- shit. In fact, the two... Um, um most uh, you know successful large engineering projects of all time um, are, of course, uh, you know number one the Manhattan Project and uh, number two the Apollo program. Now the second one was actually the Nazi space program, um, but so we'll, we'll cancel that out. <laughs> Let's cancel that one. Yeah, no, and actually it was bigger. Actually, I did the analysis. Yeah, it was bigger. the Apollo project was four or five times bigger than the Manhattan project. Yeah, 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 and but the core of the Apollo project was still uh, von Braun and his his Huntsville uh, his Huntsville team. Um, so let's let's keep it American here um, and um, and focus on Manhattan, which was uh, which was really run arguably better. Um, now, if you look at what Manhattan was, uh, it was absolutely amazing, and um, uh, quite simply, it was run like a startup. It was everything was done like a startup. And one of the most amazing things about Manhattan is that they got um, basically people who were top quality researchers to work on shit like Richard Feynman to work on shit other than their own personal hobby horses, which is the thing that has basically never been done since then. Um, And and so, you know, I always like to joke that um, if they tried to do the Manhattan Project, um, in uh, in in nineteen uh, you know forty one uh, or whenever it was started I think forty one um, um, in the same way that um, the uh, in the way that DC would do it now uh, what they would do um, is actually very very simple they would appropriate let's say the same amount of money they would look at this problem and they would say um, wow. To build this bomb, which we know is technically possible, we're going to have to solve a huge number of problems in metallurgy and chemistry and high energy physics and this field and that field and the other field. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to put out some RFPs. We're going to put out a lot of grant proposals and we're going to say, metallurgists, come and figure out all these, you know, we invite your grant proposals related to building an atomic bomb. And every metallurgist professor of material science out there and, you know, freshwater state would be like, 
Aha! How is my research relevant to building an atomic bomb? Right? <laughs> and they, they would go and um, they would basically spend, you know, like these people spend like a third of their, their work life writing grant proposals. They would spin it and they would basically be like, here's my existing research repackaged to be about atomic bombs. And because they had friends in the metallurgy, of course, the people would be issuing these grants and approving the, you know, the recommendations would be metallurgy professors. And, you know, they have friends on the committee the you know, who really value and trust and, and admire their work. And, um, you know, bam, it goes through. And, um, and this would happen all over science and, and engineering. And the probability is, I think it's quite possible that you might get an atomic bomb by like, 1985, right? <laughs> and um, um, just in time to drop, drop it on uh, Japan in the, the Black Rain, Michael Douglas uh, era. And um, what, what is the difference between these kinds of organizations? Well, if you look at the way Manhattan actually operated, again, it operated like a startup. So it operated like a startup in that it had two-in-a-box leadership. It had the technical supervisor, Oppenheimer, and General Groves, who didn't know anything about anything except getting shit done. And it basically operated, it was structured as an absolutely top-down pyramid. Nobody was like, oh, I think I, I think I, here's my proposal for how shit would be. I mean, yes, could you make a proposal? But it was the exception rather than the rule. And so there's sort of no, you know, the, the whole, to summarize all of these differences, the nature of a startup or even a, a big startup, a big company, big tech company or a big any company, the nature of a company and the nature, nature of the Manhattan Project um, are essentially of the nature of monarchical governance. The way science is run now is the way everything is run now, which is fundamentally oligarchical. And so, you know, the idea of a scientist being ordered to, you know, told what to work on is just that would be utterly demeaning that would you would lose your class status is like, well, I mean, that's that's what going to industry is. You're descending from the Valhalla uh, of of of, you know, you are an independent, you know, spirit in the in, in the priestly tradition of science. And so expecting, you know, like expecting science to sort of get the same kinds of results as the Manhattan Project is is very, you know, is very implausible. Uh, of course, you know, the Modernas and the Pfizers of the world are also run as monarchies. And so the interesting question comes down to how could in the Washington of the 1940s, how could this monarchical structure exist, whereas it would obviously be torn to shreds and proceduralized to hell in D.C. today? Actually, there's a fact about the Manhattan Project that most people don't know, which is that it's still alive. That organization was never dissolved. It has a current successor. Uh, my mother actually worked for its current living successor. Its current living successor is called the Department of Energy. And the Department of Energy is um, notoriously one of the most incompetent departments in Washington, which is saying a lot. And <laughs> so it actually, it's, it's the same institution. And how has this deteriorated? Well, when you answer that question, um, you basically clearly are looking for systemic effects. And then... Um, what happens is you're like, okay, what was different about DC in the 1930s? And you can't help avoid, uh, you can't help but run into the observation that maybe this worked because DC in the 1930s 
was also a monarchy. Um, because when you look at the way that FDR actually operated, um, he, he could tell anyone to do anything. Uh, you know, he could destroy, create and destroy agencies. Uh, you know, for in some cases he had to, you know, Congress was not quite a rubber stamp for FDR. Uh, normally the way he operated is he would rather create a new parallel agency, his so-called alphabet soup, um, you know, than uh, work with these old line, like, you know, the the State Department and the Army were very, very conservative at the time. Uh, so we had trouble working with them sometimes. So he'd read around them. But um, FDR himself was not very much of a manager. He was a, a very Trump-like figure in some ways. Um, he was very entertaining, very charismatic, and uh, he loved to lie. There's nothing FDR liked more than just telling a lie and being believed. Um, Trump exaggerates, but FDR would add just like straight out make shit up. And um, But the great thing that FDR had that Trump didn't have is one, he had essentially absolute power or close to it. Another is he had a, an ability to delegate. And he delegated to very, very effective managers, people like Harry Hopkins. Now, there's some um, evidence that Harry Hopkins may have been a GRU agent or at least a GRU contact. That said, the guy knew how to get shit done. And so you have, you know, you're like, how was it that this Washington could get shit done? And it's like, well, it was getting shit done in the Manhattan Project because that was shaped like organizations which get shit done. And um, moreover, that organization existed in the context of a whole organization, the whole of D.C. that was shaped like an organization that gets shit done. And then you're like, wait a second, everything from like my COVID vaccine to my car to the restaurant that I'll eat at once the COVID vaccines finally get distributed. None of these things is run as an oligarchy. They're all run as monarchies. They're all shaped like pyramids and they have an accountable leader at the top and he tells people what to do. And if his results are bad, he or she, I should say, um, and if his results are bad, then um, he um, he gets tossed. That's accountability for you. And um, and of course, nothing like that exists in, you know, FDA. I mean, my God. Right. And so you have, um, you know, or like like has anyone gotten fired for screwing up the CDC tests? Has anyone lost their job? I'm sure people have like lost reputation. It was embarrassing that the U.S. made these this series of mistakes in FDA and CDC, uh, you know, in January, February, and March. Uh, who has suffered for this? Probably no one. Uh, and so you have like this is a completely different character of organization. Um, then, you know, you take one step back and you look at this historically and you're like, OK, this is super interesting because nominally America has the same constitution in 1933 as in 2020. Nobody's like rewritten the holy document or anything. Nonetheless, it appeared to me, it, it appears to me that at that time, these were actually different forms of constitution in the most basic Aristotelian sense. You know, it's like plants, animals, and fungi, right? You know, um, clearly you're not the same animal if you go from becoming a, you know, a plant to becoming a fungus, like you've, you've crossed kingdoms. And so, you know, in a sense, um, the, U.S. in 1933 was a de facto monarchy. If you want to understand what was going on that made it possible for this organization, the Manhattan Project, to exist, let me read a speech to you that is a speech that was made by a, a leader who uh, seized power in 1933. Um, and when he took power, um, this is the speech he made. 
if I read the temper of our people correctly, we now realize, as we have never realized before, our interdependence on each other, that we cannot merely take, but we must give as well. That if we are to go forward, we must move as a trained and loyal army, willing to sacrifice for the good of a common discipline. Because without such discipline, no progress is made, no leadership becomes effective. We are, I know, ready and willing to submit our lives and property to such discipline because it makes possible a leadership which aims at a larger good. This I propose to offer, pledging that the larger purposes will bind upon us all as a sacred obligation with a unity of duty hitherto evoked only in time of war. With this pledge taken, I assume unhesitatingly the leadership of this great army of our people, dedicated to a disciplined attack upon our common problems. Action in this image and to this end is feasible under the form of government which we have inherited from our ancestors. Our constitution is so simple and practical that it is possible always to meet extraordinary needs by changes in emphasis and arrangement without loss of essential form. That is why our constitutional system has proved itself the most superbly enduring political mechanism the modern world has produced. It has met every stress, a vast expansion of territory, of foreign wars, of bitter internal strife, of world relations. It is to be hoped that the normal balance of executive and legislative authority may be wholly adequate to meet the unprecedented task before us. But it may be that an unprecedented demand and need for undelayed action may call for temporary departure from that normal balance of public procedure. I am prepared under my constitutional duty to recommend the measures that a stricken nation in the midst of a stricken world may require. These measures or such other measures as the Congress may build out of its experience and wisdom. I shall seek within my constitutional authority to bring to speedy adoption. But in the event that the Congress shall fail to take one of these two courses, and in the event that the national emergency is still critical, I shall not evade the clear course of duty that will then confront me. I shall ask the Congress for the one remaining instrument to meet the crisis broad executive power to wage a war against the emergency, as great as the power that would be given to me if we were in fact invaded by a foreign enemy. For the trust reposed in me, I will return the courage and the devotion that befit the time. I can do no less. We face the arduous days that lie before us in the warm courage of the national unity with a clear consciousness of seeking old and precious moral values, with the clean satisfaction that comes from the stern performance of duty by old and young alike. We aim at the assurance of a rounded and permanent national life. We do not distrust the future of, the, of essential democracy. The people of the United States have not failed. In their need, they have registered a mandate that they want direct 
vigorous action. They have asked for discipline and direction under leadership. They have made me the present instrument of their wishes in the spirit of the gift. I take it. In this dedication of a nation, we humbly ask the blessing of God. May he protect each and every one of us. May he guide me in the days to come. End of speech. So, uh, you know, that's obviously a, a kind of slightly different kind of political rhetoric than uh, you'll find in the United States these days. Yep, sure enough. And that was? FDR, 1933, first inaugural address. Yeah, there were enough internal clues. I figured it out, of course. But yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funny. I've uh, often said that uh, Trump could have easily won if he had had the psychological capability to just have channeled either FDR or Churchill for six months. Uh, but the, uh, the, poor, the poor lad was just not capable of doing. He was capable of doing a very good fake FDR or Churchill, but he needed to not just, ca- I mean, he he didn't do it. He didn't do it in, in sort of the tone that he took on that. And, you know, no doubt you remember, um, you know, the amazing switch in March um, in which, uh, you know, basically... Um, you know, sort of before a certain date, the right way to think about the coronavirus was that it was a right wing conspiracy theory. And your best way to fight the conspiracy theory was to go down to your local Chinese restaurant and lick some doorknobs. And um, and you should definitely not wear a mask because, you know, that's completely wrong. And and that switched around. And I think that the person who caused that switch was actually Trump. I think that if Trump had taken a hard line on the virus, I think the establishment would have had no choice but to take a soft line and it would have gone full Sweden. And you could already see signs of that popping up. You could see signs of like the civil liberties establishment swinging into action to sort of prevent these horrible quarantines and lockdowns and so forth. And then Trump himself, and this was a personal decision by this one person, basically instinctively took the other side. And that actually caused the establishment to turn on a dime and go um, with the full lockdown theory, which, however, they couldn't really perform on. Although it sort of looked like they were, but that was just virus seasonality. Indeed. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I think we're going to have to wrap it up here, Curtis. This has been a remarkably interesting conversation. We've gone over our usual time for a Currents episode. Uh, there's a lot more in the uh, in the essay, which I would recommend uh, folks read if they found what they heard here on the show today interesting. And the, again, the name of the essay is 2020. The Year of Everything Fake. And that's at Gray Mirror, Gray Mirror with an A dot substack dot com. Indeed. All righty. Let's, we'll wrap her there. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.